Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. It's this gamble that if he can go to the legislature and say, look, I'm going to do something about the regulator problem, would you stop bothering me about the towns and taxes? That's author Abby Chandler discussing her new book, Seized with the Temper of the Times, Identity and Rebellion in Pre-Revolutionary America. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is author Abby Chandler, discussing her new book, Seized with the Temper of the Times, Identity and Rebellion in Pre-Revolutionary America. Abby Chandler has produced a wonderful book here that she'll talk about today, in which she looks at two events that are seminal uh, in 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 the oncoming drama of the American Revolution, the Stamp Act riots and the Regulator Rebellion in North Carolina. She's going to look at these events, which we think we know pretty well, in a unique way from the vantage point of colonies that are often considered second fiddle in the grander story of the revolution, Rhode Island, overshadowed, of course, by Massachusetts, and North Carolina, often overshadowed by its neighbor, South Carolina. This is a great book, and it will challenge us in ways that we really haven't before when we examine these events and understand them in the broader context of the imperial world. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Abby Chandler. Abby Chandler, thank you for joining us. It's very good to be here. Tell us about your background. So I am originally from New England. I lived in both Massachusetts and Maine as a child, but I worked in the museum field after college, and that took me to Kentucky and then to Iowa and then to Maryland. I then came back to New England for graduate school. I was hired by the University of Massachusetts Lowell in 2010. And I think that living in all different parts of the United States and teaching history in all different parts of the United States is what gave me this interest in looking at political issues on a local level. So that's the way that my own background help to contribute to the writing of this book. What first drew your interest into this topic? So what originally sparked my interest is I interned at the Newport Historical Society in Newport, Rhode Island in 2005. And at that point, I was a year into a PhD program. I was working on a dissertation on a completely different topic. And one of the houses in the collection of the Newport Historical Society is the Wanton Lyman Hazard House, which belonged to a man named Martin Howard in the 1750s and early 1760s. 
And at that time, they knew very little about Howard. They knew that he was a loyalist. They knew he supported the Stamp Act. That was about it. So I started researching Howard and became fascinated by him. He published a pamphlet explaining why he was supporting the Stamp Act in 1765, and he draws on the same language of John Locke that Thomas Jefferson will use in the Declaration of Independence. Howard says that Parliament gave the colonists life, liberty, and a state. They have these personal rights, but that personal rights are separate from political rights. So that was what first sparked my interest in Martin Howard, that here's this man who was a loyalist drawing from the same language that Thomas Jefferson would use in the Declaration of Independence. And long after my internship was over, I kept studying Martin Howard, and he became the Chief Justice of North Carolina in 1767. And he was, interestingly, a very popular man in North Carolina. He was widely respected by both the people who would be patriots He was also respected by the regulators, and I'll talk more about the Regulator Rebellion later in our conversation. And so that was what really made me want to write a book about Martin Howard and the political movements that he was involved in, because he had such an interesting response to the world around him, and the world around him also had very interesting responses to him. What sort of place was colonial Rhode Island? So I'm writing about the 1760s and 1770s, and Rhode Island is a place that is very unique in New England. It was originally founded as four colonies, and these were colonies largely founded by people who'd been expelled from Massachusetts for both political and religious differences, and they did not want to meld into one colony but they eventually realize that if they don't form into a single colony, they're likely to get absorbed into Massachusetts or Connecticut. And that tension between how do we balance the communities on Aquidneck Island, Newport and Portsmouth, with the interests of the mainland communities of Providence and Warwick is a core part of what's going on in Rhode Island. This is a place with a lot of internal political strife. It's also a place with a lot more cultural and religious diversity than we find otherwise in New England. Rhode Island is religiously tolerant from the beginning. There is a large Quaker community there. There's a community of Sephardic Jews who are coming from Spain and Portugal and their colonies in South America in search of religious toleration. There are Baptists, there are Anglicans. So you have that core internal political tension coupled with a very wide range of people coming from different places with different religious backgrounds. North Carolina was a very different place. Talk about life there. This is, I did not know this going into this project. This is part of what made me want to write this book. 
Rhode Island and North Carolina have a lot in common with each other. And they are, again, that same history of political tensions. Originally, North and South Carolina were one colony, Carolina Colony, founded in the mid-17th century. And they will eventually split in the 1720s into North Carolina and South Carolina. But like Rhode Island, there are a lot of internal tensions in North Carolina. There are multiple small-scale rebellions. And so you have that very long history of political, internal political tension. You also have that same commitment to religious toleration that you see in Rhode Island, and that actually dates back to Carolina Colony. John Locke, again, same John Locke that Life, Liberty, and Estate comes from, wrote the original charter for, for Carolina Colony, which explicitly spelled out that it would not be appropriate for them to tell other people what religion to practice, as long as there were at least seven people who agreed on something religiously, they would be declared a church. So, again, that same time period, I'm looking at the 1760s and early 1770s, North Carolina has a long history of internal political dissent. Because of the religious toleration, there's a wide range of cultures and religious backgrounds and so as these colonies are experiencing what starts as the imperial crisis and then becomes the American Revolution, those histories are informing the decisions that they're making. How are these two colonies, Rhode Island and North Carolina, overshadowed by their colonial neighbors? Yeah, I can. And that overshadowing is something that happens in the colonial period, but it's also something that happens in the scholarship now in the 20th and 21st centuries. So the challenges that Rhode Island and North Carolina have in the colonial period, their neighbors are larger and wealthier and more powerful than they are. So Rhode Island is dealing with Massachusetts and Connecticut. North Carolina is dealing with Virginia and South Carolina. And that sense of being a little out of step with their neighbors, overshadowed by their neighbors, is actually one of the other connections I found between North Carolina and Rhode Island in the 18th century. North Carolina has no deep harbors. And so the only vessels who could come into a North Carolina port to trade were the shallow coastal vessels. And Rhode Island is very involved in the coastal trade. They are running goods and also enslaved people down to the Caribbean. And because of that, Rhode Island ships are able to come in to North Carolina harbors. So they actually trade quite a bit with each other, while by contrast, Virginia and South Carolina and Massachusetts and Connecticut are trading directly across the Atlantic Ocean. So this is how they're getting overshadowed in the colonial period. Then in the scholarship today, most of the research has been on particularly Massachusetts and Virginia in the 1600s, the founding period, but also when we come to the American Revolution. And one of the things I found in the course of my research is that Rhode Island 
and North Carolina actually start steaming into the American Revolution, even in some ways before Massachusetts does. Because, for example, there's what's known as the Gaspé Affair in Rhode Island in 1772 when a group of Rhode Island men board and then burn a British naval schooner who is a customs vessel to the waterline. And then in North Carolina, they will actually expel their royal government in 1775, the earliest of any of the British North American colonies to do that. But because the stories of the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, the and then Lexington and Concord tend to be what people focus on when looking at the lead into the American Revolution. You also have... Patrick Henry and his speeches in Virginia. And so, again, this is a piece of this story that is often left out that Rhode Island and North Carolina are very active in the lead up to the American Revolution. How did Rhode Island react to the Stamp Act? Was it different than what we saw in Massachusetts? It's very different. And this, again, is one of the core threads throughout my book, And one of the arguments I make in this book is how your colony experienced the Stamp Act has everything to do with the political situation in your colony prior to the start of the Stamp Act crisis. And as an example of that, in 1765, there are two types of British North American colonies. There are charter colonies, and a charter colony means that the King of England gave you a document which gave you the right to create your colony and set up your government. You could elect your own governor. You elect your legislature. In 1765, Rhode Island and Connecticut are the only charter colonies left. Massachusetts, by contrast, is a royal colony, as were all the other British North American colonies of that period. And what that means is that the king and parliament appoint your governor, but you can elect your own legislature. So coming into the Stamp Act crisis, Governor Francis Bernard of Massachusetts and the lieutenant governor, a man named Thomas Hutchison, are pro-Stamp Act, as were all of the royal governors. But the legislature is anti-Stamp Act because they are locally elected men. So the tensions in Massachusetts over the Stamp Act are the legislature versus the governor. Rhode Island, however, experiences the Stamp Act very differently because the governor is a locally elected man, Samuel Ward, and he is opposed to the Stamp Act, and the legislature are opposed to the Stamp Act. And this is also true in Connecticut. In Connecticut, there's very little that happens in the Stamp Act crisis because there really isn't anyone to target. The thing that makes Rhode Island different is Martin Howard, the loyalist who is at the center of this book. He was part of a group known as the Newport Junto, which is a group of men who lived in Newport who were interested in political events, who are very pro-empire, and they are actively advocating for pro-imperial policies. They feel Rhode Island should be a royal colony, and they, of course, support the Stamp Act. So the Stamp Act crisis 
in Rhode Island is unique because it's pitting a locally elected governor and a locally elected legislature against against a group of men who are private citizens. Whereas by contrast, every other colony is the royally appointed governor versus the legislature. So this makes the Stamp Act crisis in Rhode Island a far more intimate affair because this is people targeting their neighbors on both Howard is targeting his neighbors and then men like William Ellery in Newport, who's one of the leaders of the Sons of Liberty in Newport, is in turn targeting Howard and his friends. Abby, talk about the North Carolina Regulator Movement. What were their goals? So the Regulator Rebellion is a rebellion that starts in 1768. It'll come to a close in 1771. The regulators are a group of men from what is now central North Carolina. They lived in Orange County, Anson County, Rowan County. And the regulators, one they gave themselves. And it really sums up their intent. They wanted to regulate, or as we would say now, reform the North Carolina colonial government. And I want to be really clear, it's not the royal government that they are objecting to, it's their colonial government. And the thing they're concerned about stems from the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, North Carolina is a relatively poor colony, relatively obscure colony. They don't have enough money in North Carolina to pay salaries to all the government officials. So men like William Tryon, who's the royal governor, and Martin Howard, who after 1767 is the chief justice, they get salaries. But if you are a sheriff, county sheriff or a county clerk, at best you get a stipend. Instead, what you are given to pay you for your labors is the right to collect a percentage of the money that you are collecting. So if you are a sheriff, you collect taxes. If you are a county clerk, you are the person who processes the paperwork on a land sale. And the two problems the regulators have with this system, number one, there's no rule that dictates how much of a percentage of the original tax or the original fee the sheriff or the clerk can collect. So a sheriff could come in and collect a 1% fee or 1% of the overall fee, or that sheriff could come in and collect 10% of that overall fee. There's nothing saying he can't. And they also don't keep very good records. So the sheriff could show up at your house on the 1st of November and explain he was here for the taxes, and you would pay him, and off he would go. He could come back three weeks later on the 21st of November and explain that you hadn't paid your taxes and you need to pay your taxes. And you could say, well, I did pay the taxes, and look, I wrote it down that I paid the taxes, and he would dismiss it. And this is actually something that has been a problem in North Carolina for a very long time. They're aware of this. And there's some effort from Arthur Dobbs, who's the governor prior to William Tryon, to do something about this. 
the thing that causes it to just completely get out of hand in the 1760s is that post-French and Indian War flood of settlers out into the North Carolina backcountry. Many of the regulators are men who've been living there since the late 1750s, early 1760s. There wasn't a county government, so they're moving out there and settling. But now there are all of a sudden this wave of sheriffs and county clerks who are all of a sudden collecting this money. And the biggest problem beyond it's unregulated is the people who created the law that said, okay, this is how the county sheriff and the county clerk are going to get paid, is the North Carolina legislature. And the North Carolina legislature is primarily comprised of wealthy men from eastern North Carolina. And the sheriffs and the county clerks are their younger brothers and their sons and their nephews. So there's no motivation to fix the situation because it's benefiting the families of the men who are in the legislature. So when the regulators start objecting, the goal is for the North Carolina government to be regulated so that it would not be exploiting them. So that's their hope. They would like a properly functioning government. How does the regulator crisis resolve itself? It it does and it doesn't, as is so often the case with those rebellions. Things get progressively worse. The regulators submit petitions, and or some of the regulators are submitting petitions. You also have other regulators who are increasingly getting more and more violent. Very infamously, in September of 1770, they break up a court session in Hillsborough, North Carolina, which is the county seat of Orange County, where many of the regulators live. And at that point in time, Governor Tryon really emerges as a man who's caught between a rock and a hard place. And the problem that he's facing is on the one side, he has the North Carolina legislature. They are not happy about the imperial taxes. They objected to the Stamp Act. They are now objecting to the Townsend taxes. So he's trying to placate them because he doesn't want a situation like the one in Massachusetts. And he sends some letters to Thomas Hutchison, who by this point in time is the governor of Massachusetts, and they're talking back and forth about how do we deal with these colonists objecting to the taxes. So that's problem on one side. Problem on the other side is the regulators who are pressuring him to do something about the exploitive system that exists in North Carolina. He ultimately has to decide who he's going to back. He decides he's going to back the legislature, not so much because he cares about their problems with the regulators, but it's this gamble that if he can go to the legislature and say, look, I'm going to do something about the regulator problem, would you stop bothering me about the towns and taxes? And so these, all these pieces just coalesce 
1771, the legislature passes something called the Johnston Riot Act, which declares that from here on out, any regulator actions are treason. The goal is to convict them on treason charges and hang them. Incidentally, a couple years later, George III will ask for an investigation of the regulator rebellion, and he'll read Johnson's Riot Act, and he is just appalled by it. No, you cannot execute your own citizens. This is not okay. Um, that will come back in. So Tryon and the North Carolina colonial militia march west out to Orange County. They come in contact with a group of regulators at Alamance Creek, and this leads to the Battle of Alamance, where the regulators are crushed. Afterwards, six of them will be will be executed on treason charges, so they do carry on ahead with that. So the regulator rebellion comes to a close there, but none of the regulators' concerns have been addressed. Tryon then becomes the governor of New York. He's replaced by a man named Josiah Martin, and as part of George III wanting an investigation into Johnson's Riot Act, he also wanted an investigation into the regulators' concerns. Governor Josiah Martin travels around the North Carolina backcountry interviewing regulators, comes back to the eastern North Carolina where the legislature meets, and he basically walks in and says, you know what, you guys are doing a terrible job and you're exploiting those people in the backcountry and you need to do something about this. And they look at him and say, that's imperial overreach. And as I mentioned a while back, North Carolina is the first British North American colony to expel its royal government, and one of the reasons why they expelled Josiah Martin and the royal government in 1775 is because Josiah Martin wanted to fix the concerns the regulators had raised, and the legislature did not want to fix those concerns. So that's how it eventually comes to a close, but it's a very interesting story with a lot of twists and turns, particularly that final moment when the royal governor becomes the regulator's biggest champion, and vice versa. Abby, how do these seemingly unrelated events tie into the greater revolutionary crisis? So, the ways that I see them as being intertwined and ultimately becoming part of the revolutionary crisis is the ways that both the Stamp Act crisis and the Regulator Rebellion can give us insight into both local concerns but also imperial concerns. So we think of the Stamp Act crisis as the first stepping stone on the way to the American Revolution, and that's a reasonable assessment. But as I dug deeper into what the Stamp Act crisis looked like on the ground, as I said earlier, it's very how you experience is everything to do with your particular colony's political situation. So I think the Stamp Act crisis is that stepping stone on the way to the American Revolution, but it also tells a story about the uniqueness of each individual British colony that I think is a piece of this story that we also need to be thinking about. And so 
as I say in the book, the Stamp Act crisis is something we think of as part of the imperial crisis, but it's really very much a local story. But then the regulator rebellion is the flip side of that. It usually is only talked about in context with North Carolina history. What I found interesting about it was the extent to which it was a product of the broader imperial crisis. And I referred to the fact that Tryon is caught between that rock and the hard place where his legislature wants him to deal with the regulators and do something about the towns and taxes. He chooses dealing with the regulators. And so, yes, the regulator rebellion is a product of concerns within colonial North Carolina, but it's also a product of that broader imperial crisis. And so I think as we look at the revolutionary era, we need to look at what is the bigger imperial concern, but also what are the concerns of people on the ground in the individual colonies. Abby, what message do you hope is received from this book? The thing I hope that people take from this book, and this is building on what I just said, is the importance of thinking about those questions of local control versus imperial control and the way in which this increasingly becomes a issue of local control versus federal control as we get into the United States period. Because that is, of course, <laughs> something we are still, as a nation, trying to figure out in 2023. Abby Chandler, thanks again. You're welcome. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying... So long.